If you're new to Wednesday night, we study the, what we call the Old Testament. Jesus called it the law and the prophets. It's a record of the failure of man, the failure of our flesh to perform good enough. It's called the Old Covenant. And in the Old Covenant, we'll get to this by the end of our time tonight, Jeremiah, one of the prophets to Judah, who spoke to the southern tribes of Judah, he said, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when he's going to make a new covenant. Okay, as Christians, that's our thing, the new covenant, right? He said, I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, with all these chosen people of mine that have failed, The new covenant is actually with Israel and with the house of Judah. And as Gentiles, we're believers in Israel's Messiah. Isn't that interesting? Jesus is the Messiah that Israel waited for. And we have been grafted in to the people of God. Romans 9, 10, and 11. We've been grafted in and now we're no longer strangers. We're no longer afar off, but we're fellow citizens with the household of God. We're partakers of all the promises and covenants. The Jewish people are called the chosen people. That's what God called them. If you're a believer in their Messiah, Israel's Messiah, you're called chosen in him. We're chosen in Christ. Now, I was telling my son the other day, I have a 17-year-old son, and he's trying to figure all this stuff out. And He's like, what's this whole chosen thing? Because there's some ideas that go around in the Christian church, really in the last 500 years since the Reformation, that God chooses some people, he chooses them from their birth to go to heaven and other people he chooses to send them to hell for eternity. The Bible doesn't teach that. That's a medieval concept. Well, the Bible doesn't come out of the middle, the medieval ages of Europe. It comes out of Israel, first century Israel. God called Abraham, he chose Abraham and he said, through you, Abraham, all families of the earth will be blessed. Chosen means I choose you to be near me, to know me. I'm gonna reveal myself to you so that you can make me known to the rest of the world. And so now as Gentile believers in Israel's Messiah, we are chosen in the Messiah to know God. And to what? go into all the world and share the gospel with every creature. Why? Because God so loves the world. He hasn't chosen people to burn them in hell for eternity. He's chosen us. We're chosen to know him and to make him known because God is not willing that any perish but that all come to repentance. The scripture tells us. You see? Well, these chosen people, God gave them the law, the old covenant, in preparation for bringing the Savior. I wouldn't know that I need the Savior unless I realized that I can't do it. (laughs) 
The Old Testament is the record of a, his people who can't do it. You ever feel like I can't do this? <laughs> That's exactly where God brings us. Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. You know, the Christian life isn't God looking at you saying, now you go out and be a good boy. You go out and try to be a good girl because we can't. We're broken. We were born into a sinful world and we have a sinful nature in me that is in my flesh. There dwells no good thing. I need a savior. I need Jesus. And guess what? I have him. <laughs> and he's saved me. He's forgiven my sins. In the new covenant that Jeremiah said that God would make with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, he says, for I will forgive their iniquities and I will remember their sin no more. This is what God has, is declaring over you if you're a believer in Israel's Messiah, in Jesus the Christ. He says, I don't even remember your sins. You're that free to get up, to get up, to get off your mat and start walking. You're, you're that free to wake up tomorrow morning and go, God, your favor is upon me. You're free to expect God to do good things in your life through all the troubles of this world. And this is a troubled world. Through all the tribulations and trials and problems that we face. Through it all, God, I expect you to be doing good things because my sins are forgiven and my iniquities, you don't even remember them. He looks at us and we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. But here we are, we're studying the Old Testament Wednesday nights. We're back in this time where they were struggling and it was just total failure. It's a setup so that when the Savior comes, they're ready and they're like, yes, we, we need you, Lord. We need you, we we, we're thankful for you. The law was given to take us down so that we might be ready to receive Christ. Okay, that's what the law will do. I, you, you look at some of these churches, pastors who put the law onto their people, the legalism, It says in Galatians, all that are under the law are under a curse. <laughs> I don't, I'm not here to bring a curse on you. If the curse has already worked in you and you realize I can't do this, I can't live the Christian life, then you've been prepared to receive Christ, to believe on Christ, to believe the gospel, you see? The law was given so that sin would increase, it says in Romans chapter five. Why would a holy God give something to man that would increase our sin? If, you're, if you embrace the law of God, you're gonna stir up sin in your own life because that's what the law was designed to do. That's what it says in Romans chapter five. Because God knows our biggest problem is our pride. I'm such a great guy. I'm such a good guy. And we talk about each other like that. Oh, you know, Rick, he's such a good guy. You tell Rick that to his face and he'll tell you, dude, don't say that. You don't know me. The thing is, I know all of you guys. I know all about you. 
Pastor Ed told me all about you. No, just kidding. I know you because the Bible tells me about you. It says everybody has sinned in the past and everybody presently falls short of the glory of God. We all need Jesus and we have him. You know, we have him. This is our confidence. This is our, he is our strength. In myself and of myself, I, I have nothing to say except, oh God, help me, have mercy. Have mercy upon me, a sinner. In him, I can get up, believe God. I can get up and say, God, bless this day, because I know you want to. God, bless my life. Help me through the struggles that I'm going through, through all the trials and family drama, through all the heartbreak of what's happening to my loved ones. Help me. And God's like, I want to help you. And I love you deeply. You're my highly favored child. You've been forgiven. I don't remember any sins. You're flawless in my eyes. There's no flaw in you at all. God says when he looks at you, believe it or not. (laughs) Believe it or not. God sees no flaw in you, believer in Christ. He sees no flaw in you. Believe it or not. You can believe it or not. (laughs) You can be blessed and excited about tomorrow, about next week, about next month, about this coming year, this next decade. Or you can sit there and beat yourself up to a pulp. The enemy would love that. Anyway, let's jump into Hosea 9. I'm getting carried away here. The northern tribes are floundering in failure under the old covenant. And God says to them, do not rejoice, O Israel, with joy like other people. You're my chosen people. I'm holding you to a different standard. I've chosen you among all the peoples of the world to know me so that you might make me known. He says, don't rejoice like other people that are frivolously partying on the deck of the Titanic as it goes down. Don't, don't, don't rejoice. You're my people. For you have played the harlot against your God. And we're, we've talked about what this means. You've, you've acted like a prostitute. You're my bride and you've gone out and you've cheated on me with your idols, okay? This is what's happening. They turned their back on God who was revealed in the sacrifice at the temple, which was all a prophetic picture of the person and work of Jesus Christ. It was all a revelation of who God is. God is self-giving, self-sacrificing, redeeming love. That's what, they, when, they, when they worship God as God prescribed to Moses in the wilderness, that's what they saw. God is a redeeming lover. He's self-sacrificing. It was all a picture, pointing a prophetic picture. It's not my opinion. This is what it says in the New Testament in the book of Hebrews, that all those sacrifices were foreshadows of the person and the work of Christ. But they'd turn their back on all that and they'd made gods with their own hands, idols, false ideas 
they, were, they made God in their own image and their lives were empty. They were afraid. They stood at a distance from God. If we worship God as he's revealed himself, we draw near to him because everything he reveals to us is I'm a savior who's come to forgive you. Whether it was in the sacrifice or it's in his son, Jesus Christ. You can come near me, sinner, because I'm dying for you. I'm, I'm the sacrifice for your sin. Come here. Come here. But if I turn away from that, if I drift away from looking at God as he's revealed himself, I'm, I, I stand at a distance. I'm afraid of God. He's going to throw a lightning bolt down at me because I'm such a wreck. This is, this is exactly the pagan mindset. This is exactly the pagan mindset. And God's like, oh, that you would come to me as I've revealed myself. But the northern tribes had turned. They weren't coming to worship at the temple. They were worshiping their idols. And God says, you've played the harlot. You've turned to an illegitimate source of life. That's what a prostitute is. It's an illegitimate source of intimacy. If a man goes to a prostitute, that's not the legitimate source of intimacy. Your wife is. So God says, you've turned to an illegitimate source that's not going to give you anything. You've made love for hire on every threshing floor. They'd set their idols up on their threshing floors, that they went to their threshing floors to worship. God never said to do that. The place of worship was in Jerusalem at the temple by the sacrifice. This was the truth. This was the gospel in the middle of their national life for centuries, this foreshadow of the gospel. And they were setting up idols on their threshing floors. God never called for that. It was chaos. And so, so Hosea's bringing the, this word to the 10 northern tribes. Remember, God had commanded Hosea the prophet to marry a prostitute. That's how the whole book of Hosea opened up. A prostitute who would continue her prostitution. And God called Hosea to love her and to seek her out and to bring her back and to pay off all of her debts and all as a living illustration. Now, this would be crazy if, <laughs> to be an Old Testament prophet. You know, God says, marry a prostitute because I want your life to be a living illustration to my people of what they're doing to me. They're going to prostitutes. But just as I'm calling you to be a, a lover to her and to go fetch her and bring her home and to bring her back into your house, this is what I'm going to do with my people. I'm going to never leave them, never forsake them. God is saying to Israel, you've turned your back on me. And you've turned to idols that are lies. Idols are lies about God. It says in Isaiah chapter 44, they're lies. And lies will wreck your life. That's why God hates idols. Because they're lies. He wants them to know the truth about him that's in the sacrifice at the temple, a foreshadow of Christ. He's saying, don't rejoice don't party on like everything's okay. Don't go on as if you're not about to be severely spanked, is what he's saying, for cheating on me with your idols, for making love for hire, for money 
on your threshing floor for your, prost- your spiritual prostitution. That's what he's saying here. The threshing floor and the wine press, notice, this is where they were worshiping these idols. They shall not feed them. And new wine shall fail in her. God's saying, you're taking, you're, I've been blessing your threshing floor and your wine press. You've had abundance of grains and grapes and crops and wine and new wine. It's been my blessing. But you've, you've turned those places of my blessing and my sustenance and provision for you, you've turned it into your worship, place where you worship your idols and the, the, your, your supply is going to fail you. Your idolatry and sin, he's saying to his people Israel here, it's like, like termites that are eating away at the beam of a house until the house, supporting structure of the house is eaten up and it eventually fails and the whole roof caves in. He's saying your livelihood, the threshing floor and your wine presses are going to fail you. The places where I've blessed you with an abundance, it's going to fail you. It's not time for you to be frivolously partying. It's time for you to be getting your act together, is what he's saying. It's time to turn back to me. I am your source of life. I am your source of life. I have a guy's thing that all you guys are invited to on Wednesday. We just sit around and fellowship, get to know each other, and then discuss passages out of the Gospel of Mark. And today we were talking about how God is our source, okay? He's the only true source of life, and that means your identity, your worth, and your righteousness, okay? He want, he know, he's the one who will tell you who you are. The one who made you knows who you are. He tells you who he, you are in Christ. You are highly loved. What you're worth, you're worth his son to him, unfathomable worth. Your righteousness comes from him. The Pharisees were trying to get their identity, their worth, and their righteousness from a different source. They were disconnected from the true source. Is God your source or do you have some other source? Okay. The Pharisees got their identity from feeling superior to other people so they were constantly putting people down so that they could feel better about themselves. They were saying your sin is the deal breaker sin so they could feel better. This is sick. This is idolatry. Jesus, God, how God, how he has revealed himself. He is our source. He'll tell you who you are. If you don't know who you are in this world, you're a sitting duck. Because the whole world is designed to go after the vulnerable that don't know who they are. If you don't know what you're worth, if you don't know that there's righteousness available to you for free, how many people don't know who they are and, and people will smell it? Manipulators. A young lady that doesn't know her worth. A guy will come up and he can smell that stuff and he'll manipulate you to use you. The number one call of a father with his daughter is to let her know what she's worth before she goes out into the world. 
Because if someone treats her as worth less than what she is worth, they're going to take advantage of her. The number one responsibility of a dad is to let your daughter know your, your worth is so unfathomable so that when the predator comes along, she doesn't fall for it for a second. The number one call of a dad in his son's life is to let him know, dude, you, you got some weight to you, man. You matter. If a dad doesn't tell his son that, if he doesn't communicate him, that to him over the years, over the, in, the, in the little moments that arise, not, like, not sitting him down and lecturing him, but as it, as it comes, he's going to go join a gang. What are, the, what are these gangbangers doing? They're trying to show the world that they matter, that, they have, that, that there's weight to them. The dad should have told him that. If a dad tells his boy that, he goes out into the world, he doesn't need to hurt anybody. He doesn't need to, manip- you know, to intimidate people. He doesn't need to hurt, you know, cripple people or whatever to show the world that I'm here and I matter. I got some weight to me. No, he can go out and be gentle with people because he already knows. His dad's already told him a thousand times over the years. God's grieved because they've turned away from the, their true source to these dead idols. And, it was, and, and so there was a deadness to them. They shall not dwell in the Lord's land, but Ephraim shall return to Egypt and shall eat unclean things in Assyria. Okay, he calls the 10 northern tribes, he calls them sometimes Ephraim, which was the largest of the 10 northern tribes. Or he, he calls them Israel. You know, he calls them Samaria sometimes, which is the capital of the 10 northern tribes. Okay, so when he's talking about Ephraim, he's talking about the 10 northern tribes, about the kingdom of Israel, the 10 northern tribes. He's saying here, not only is your prosperity about to fail, you're about to be evicted, notice, from my land that I have given you. The land of Israel is God's land, and he gave it to the descendants of Abraham. You're about to be scattered into Egypt, he's saying, and into Assyria. You're about to, some of you are being scattered to the south and others to the north. They shall not offer wine offerings to the Lord, nor shall their sacrifices be pleasing to him. It shall be like bread, the bread of mourners to them. All who eat it will be defiled, for their bread shall be for their own life. In other words, in the land, the lands of exile where you're about to go, there will be no bread or food for sacrifice to the Lord. There will only be enough bread for your survival. It, this bread, shall not come into the house of the Lord. Since they don't want to honor God as God had called them and prescribed that they honor him on their feast days, the Lord's going to send them into exile and they won't be able to hold these feasts to the Lord. So in essence, what God is saying, I'm going to give you what you want. I'm going to give you what you've shown that you want. You don't want 
to worship me as I prescribe to you that would be a blessing to you because you'll see in the sacrifice who I am and how much I love you and you'll be kept close to me. Since you don't want any of it, I'll send you to these lands where you won't be able. What will you do in the appointed day, in the day of the feast of the Lord? For indeed, they are gone because of destruction. Egypt will gather them up. Memphis shall bury them. Okay, they're not buried in Memphis, Tennessee. The original Memphis, I think we have a map. See Memphis right there? In northern Egypt, very close to Israel. So some of you are going to be buried down in Memphis, he's saying. And others of you will be buried in Assyria. Nestles shall possess their valuables of silver. Thorns shall be in their tents. In other words, the towns that you're scattered out of will become like ghost towns. Have you ever been to a town that once was thriving and now there's nobody there and the weeds have grown up and the sidewalks cracked and that's what he's describing here. The days of punishment have come. The days of recompense have come. Israel knows. The prophet is a fool. The spiritual man is insane because of the greatness of your iniquity and, the, the, and great enmity. This is what the people of Israel were saying to Hosea. Well, everyone is rejoicing because was, there, was there was a material prosperity while there was a a spiritual deterioration. Hosea's announcing, you guys, there's a, there's a severe spanking. That's what it is. Okay, you can say judgment. That's, but it, when you look at it, because he's, never, he's not gonna burn them and throw them away, he's gonna spank them and then bring them back to himself. Hosea's saying, while things are prospering, Hosea sees the spiritual deterioration and he says, watch out, guys, because God's gonna come here and shut this all down and you're gonna be scattered into these other nations, into cruel bondage. And so as Hosea's announcing this judgment, they're looking at him going, dude, they're driving around in their, you know, Bugatti chariots, you know, their Ferrari you know, camels. And they're thinking, you're crazy. You're crazy. You're a fool, you dumb prophet. Look at us. We're doing so good. You know, what do you mean it's all going to fail? The wine press and the threshing floor, our supply. What do you mean it's going to fail? You're insane, man. James Boyce says, they said in effect... Who in his right mind would prophesy a judgment like this when we are in the midst of such a bountiful harvest in itself is a, the proof of the blessing? What do you mean we're, we're getting ready to fall apart? Look at our abundance. We're blessed of God. And Hosea is saying, yes, you are. You're blessed of God. But the termites are eating the house and it's getting ready to cave in. And they're looking at him going, you're crazy, man. You're crazy. We're good, man, we're good. The watchman of Ephraim is with my God. 
that the prophet is a fowler's snare in all his ways, enmity in the house of his God. They are deeply corrupted as in the days, notice, of Gibeah. Now, if you were here when we studied Judges 19, it describes the horrific crimes of perversion and violence in Israel that took place in Gibeah in the days of the judges. Hosea is saying here that in his day, it's just as bad as it was in what, in what happened in Gibeah. And I don't even want to mention, you can read it if you have the stomach to read it, what happened in Judges 19. I don't even want to mention it. It's so disturbing. What happened to, with, the, with God's chosen people, what they did in Judges 19. Isaiah's basically saying here, it's just as bad right now. This, this thing is, it's deteriorating. It's going to fall in. He will remember their iniquity. He will punish their sins. He's crying out, this prophet of God. And then next, godly, fondly, God fondly remembers back to the days when Israel had been faithful and been fruitful for a season to him. He says, I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your fathers as the first fruits on the fig tree in its first season. And what God is describing here in, in the context, everyone in this world at, at this time would, would feel the poetry in these words. Today, it's, we have to kind of think about it for a second. Grapes in the wilderness, the first fruits of the fig tree, these are unexpected blessings, you know? God is reflecting back here on how delightful were the days when Israel was connected to him when they were worshiping him as God prescribed in the sacrifice at the temple, in the, in the fruit of that love, that redeeming love was working in them and through them to one another. And he was saying, oh, you were like grapes. You were like a, 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 someone traveling through the barren, hot wilderness coming upon grapes. It would be like, wow, what a refreshing blessing. Like the first fruits of a fig tree. Blessing in nourishment is what he's saying here he says but they went to Baal Peor okay what is this if you were with us when we were years ago when we were in numbers numbers chapter 25 Genesis Exodus Leviticus numbers Deuteronomy it's the fourth book of the Old Testament when we were in chapter 25 this was eight years ago (laughs) He's saying here, but you went to Baal Peor. This story comes out of Numbers 25. Israel's state in Hosea's day and their deterioration in their idolatry in the day of Hosea was like the days of their sin at Baal Peor that we saw in Numbers 25. And in that story is another story. There was a weird, mysterious kind of prophet guy for hire named Balaam. This was as Israel was just coming out of the wilderness. And the king of Moab hired this guy named Balaam to put a curse on, the, on God's people. Okay, and the, he, he gave him gold chains and he set them up and he said, just go up and put a curse on him. And, the, and this prophet named Balaam 
Every time he started to speak, tried to speak a curse, he's like, I can't curse whom God has not cursed. You know, and he started blessing the people instead. And Balak, this king of Moab, he, he's going crazy. He's like, I didn't hire you to bless them. I hired you to curse them. And he said, there is no curse against these people. There is no curse. There's no divination that works against these people. And you know what? There's no curse and there's no divination against you who are now a part of the people of God through their Messiah, Jesus Christ. There's no curse or divination against you. There might be a witch out there right now in Redlands because Redlands is a stronghold of witchcraft. I didn't know if you knew that. And they might be putting a curse on you. There's no curse against you. It doesn't work against you. There's a force shield around you in Christ. It doesn't work against you. There's demonic beings in the unseen realm all around us. And the Bible says they can't harm you. They can harass you. They can get you down. But God will call you to get up and fight and rebuke. In the name of Jesus Christ, greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. Well, Balak was hired Balaam to curse the people. And he was, in the end, this guy was, the king was so going crazy because he'd given this guy all this money. He was, a, he was a mercenary. He was like a televangelist of the day. He, it was all about the money, you know. And then Balaam said to the king of Moab, Balak, he said, I can tell you what you can do, though, and they can bring down a curse on themselves. He said, send out all the most beautiful girls of Moab. Get all the girls, the hot young gals. Send them out there and seduce their men and get them to fall into sexual sin with your girls. And they'll be so weakened that you can go in and just wipe them out. And it worked. And so here, here, God says, Oh, how blessed you were when you were connected to me. And oh, you were like grapes in the wilderness, like figs, the first figs that appeared. You you were so rich and so strong, but you went to Baal Peor. You went the way that the children of Israel did when Balak sent the girls out to seduce them, to bring themselves down. the, The only one who can bring you down is you. In Christ. And you can bring yourself down and make yourself miserable in sin. And God won't leave you. Don't tell him that, Pastor. It'll just encourage him to sin. Okay, if you're that stupid, go for it. It's like giving you a hammer and saying, you're free to bash your own head in with that hammer. Oh, I'm free to do that? Okay. You know? You are free. You're free to use the hammer to build something or beat yourself on the head with it. God won't leave you or forsake you. Jesus said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. So what are we gonna do? He said, there's no curse against you. Greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. Well, I'm just gonna go out and bring a curse on my, make my life just so complicated and so heavy and so, such a burden and such a mess because I'm free in Christ. Yeah, you can. You know, the, Paul wrote to the Corinthians 
And he said, there's some, there's some among you that are weak, some of you are sick, and some of you have even died because you won't let go of your sin. He said, and, and, he, and he speaks of them all as they're all going to be with the Lord for eternity. But what? But they wrecked their life in the here and now. They made their life a living hell. You're free to make your life a living hell. Oh, let's go do it then, right? No. God, help us to keep and keep us from the stuff that destroys us. I don't want to wreck my wife ruin my life and destroy my relationship with my kids. I don't want to lose my ministry. But there's opportunities all the time. There's desires in my flesh that I could get sucked right into something that where I ruin my life and wreck my wife and lose the respect of my kids and will, I'll have to forfeit my ministry. I'd be lying if I said I'm above those things. I'm not. I'm just like you. In me, that is in my flesh, there dwells no good thing. I need the Holy Spirit to fill me. I need the Holy Spirit to lift me up and live a life that's buoyed up, that I don't succumb to the lust of the flesh. And so do you. This is the whole truth and nothing but the truth, guys. I'm telling you the whole truth and nothing but the truth. You swear to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, right? They went to Baal Peor and they separated themselves to that shame and they became an abomination like the thing they loved. Okay? Like the thing they loved. Speaking about the idols that they began to worship, they be, you become like the idol. Okay, an idol is a lie from your brain about God. It's a misrepresentation of God carved into wood or stone and then overlaid with silver or gold. It looks beautiful, but it's a total lie. You will become like the idol that you serve. Think about it. Idols have nothing to say. They don't talk. You'll have nothing to say. They don't hear. You'll become spiritually deaf. They can't see you will lose your spiritual vision and you'll lose your ability to see the world through God's eyes. This is what happens. Jack Hayford has a quote in his book called Rebuilding the Real You, which is a commentary on the book of Nehemiah. I read this 40 years ago and I have it memorized. It's stuck with me. But he said, beware of the God that your mind invents for you will inevitably become like it, however wretched, however false. Better still, find the true God and filling your mind with the truth of his being, you'll learn his love, you'll treasure the life that he creates. All else is confusion, all else is ultimate despair. The true God was revealed in that day in the sacrifice. God is self-giving, redeeming love. And as we keep our eyes on him, we experience that love. That love works in us and then through us to other people. And that's everything he wants. There's the truth of God. But you go after some idol, you, you'll find yourself unable to see. 
unable to think. You'll have nothing to say. You'll just be living after the desires of your flesh. You weren't made. We weren't made to live, to be slaves to our fleshly appetites. Our bodies were made to be our servants. Okay? We weren't meant to be servants of our fleshly appetites. We were meant to serve God and live off of God and our bodies were meant to be the vessel through which God works into this world. You see? The northern tribes were lost in their idolatry. They were, there was material prosperity among them, but a deterioration was underway that would ultimately end in collapse and, by, and a defeat by the Assyrians, a brutal defeat. As for Ephraim, their glory will fly away like a bird, God says. The glorious blessing that was on you as you knew me and you had something to say, you knew how to think, you saw through my eyes, you could hear. Spiritually, you were alive. But now there's gonna be no birth, no pregnancy, no conception. They, though they bring up their children, yet I will bereave them to the last man. Yes, woe to them when I depart from them. Many, in many cultures that are given over to the lust of the flesh, where the men become like beasts or animals, there's the destruction of the family. And then there's a population collapse. Okay, but here the invasion of the brutal Assyrians will take out so many of their youth and their children that they will be left bereaved, it says here, to the last man. Just as I saw Ephraim, like Tyre, Tyre was this beautiful seaport town on the coast there of the Mediterranean, powerful city, you know, a world, it was the world trade center of the time. Just as I saw Ephraim, powerful and beautiful and prosperous like Tyre, so Ephraim will bring out his children to, to the murderer. And Hosea is angry here. It's interesting. He begins to pray in verse 14. He says, give them, O Lord. Notice, and then he stops himself. <laughs> which is good. It's not good to keep talking when you're angry. Give them, O oh Lord. We, lo we lose our ability to think rationally when we're angry. If you get angry, just stop talking. Take a walk. Okay, this is good marriage advice. If, if you get married someday, don't have deep conversations after 10 o'clock at night because you both lose your mind after 10 o'clock at night and everything becomes weird. My wife and I realized this the first year of our marriage. There was this, at 10 o'clock, everything started getting weird and then we misunderstood each other and we decided, okay, at 10 o'clock, we just stop talking. And we'll pick it up after we get a good night's sleep. Okay, just a, just a good little practical word of advice. And if you get angry, shut your mouth. Don't, don't, don't keep talking. Go for a walk. Get it out. God can handle it. People can't. God can handle me. My wife can't. My kids can't. 
all the crap that's in me, my wife and kids. That's not why I'm in their lives, is to pour my junk on them. Go for a walk. Pour it out to God. Let him restore your soul and then bring it to your family. Bring the love, bring the gentleness, the kindness, the meekness, self-control. Hosea is angry here and he begins to pray, give them, O Lord, and he stops himself. And he says, what will you give? He stops himself, he's like, okay, what will you give? And what he prays here is actually a prayer for mercy. It's hard, it's, it's hard to imagine. So some of the stuff you read in the Bible, you read it from the context that you live in and a lot of people misunderstand it. If you are in that context, and do you know that there's a lot of contexts that people have lived in that are so horrific that we have to put ourselves into their shoes to understand some of the things. But here he prays. He says, what will you give, O Lord? And what he prays here is actually a prayer of mercy. Given what Hosea sees as a prophet of the horrors that are going to come upon the ten northern tribes, the imminent invasion of one of the most brutal armies in world history, the Assyrian army, he prays, give them a miscarrying womb and dry breasts. Don't let them bring any more kids into the world because of the horrors that are coming upon them so soon. This is actually a prayer for mercy. When I was thinking about this today as I was preparing this message, I remembered something my mom used to say here and there. My mom had this, this really amazing practical wisdom. But she, she would say it and she would say, you know what, someone, maybe someone died in a certain situation. She would say, death isn't the worst thing that can happen to a person. <laughs> Especially if a person knows God. If I died tomorrow, don't cry for me. I'll be in paradise with Jesus. Cry for yourself that you're still here in this world, this insane world and with all the pain that's in your body and all the worry about the election that's coming up and all the division in our culture. Don't, don't cry for me. Death isn't the worst thing that can happen. If it means being spared from the horrors of a war and torture and all. Hosea prays here in essence, give them few children so that those children don't have to face what's about to happen. That's what he's praying. And this would also be a mercy to the parents. Who would, wouldn't have to watch their kids suffer. Maybe you've lost a loved one recently. They're with the Lord. In his presence is fullness of joy. There's no more pain or sorrow or suffering. They get to skip out <laughs> on all the crazy stuff that's going on. You know? It's not the worst thing that can happen. Where are we here? Let's finish this up. So this pause, he pauses in this prayer. We should pause when we get angry and say, okay, Lord, what do you have? 
I don't have anger. I have mercy. Let me fill your heart so that you can bring that to your people. All their wickedness is in Gilgal, for there I hated them. And we saw in Hosea chapter 4, if you were here a few weeks ago, God despised the city of Gilgal because it had become idolatry central. It was the central place of the northern tribe's idolatry. At one time, Gilgal was the place where the prophets were trained. It was the school of the prophets was there under Elijah in Elisha. 2 Kings chapter 2 and verse 4. But in Hosea's day, it became a center, the center, the center of their false worship. Because of the evil of their deeds, I will drive them from my house. I'll love them no more. All their princes are rebellious. They had disgraced the house of God, his land. And so God's going to evict them from his house. Ephraim is stricken. Their root is dried up. They shall bear no fruit. This is a sad time in the history of these people. Yes, they, were they to bear children, I would kill their darlings of the womb. My God will cast them away because they didn't obey him. They shall be wanderers among the nations and indeed they became wanderers. This has happened in cycles to the children of Israel. Evicted from the land God gave them, scattered and then brought back. Evicted again, scattered and then brought back. It just happened, another cycle just happened in the last hundred years. And it's the biggest controversy on planet Earth right now. (laughs) Talk about relevant. One of the major reasons Israel went after idols like Baal and the Ashtaroths was because those gods were the gods of fertility and fruitfulness. And so God is reminding Israel that he is the Lord, he is Lord over the womb. And he says, I'm gonna turn your fruitfulness into barrenness, which again, it's a mercy. It's actually a mercy, knowing what's about to happen. And I know there's people that they look at how crazy our world is and they're like, I don't wanna have kids. Why? Because Who would want to bring a kid into this? You know? That's an understandable thing, but you don't know. We don't know. It might not be as bad as you think. You know? But there's a trend right now. I don't want to bring kids into this. Well, God knows what's coming. He says, I'm not going to bring, I'm not going to be bringing your kids into this. You know? And this is exactly what the Lord promised under the terms of the old covenant in Deuteronomy 30. And thankfully, thankfully, we can come to God by faith in a new and better covenant. The covenant that Jeremiah said was coming. This is the covenant we live under and it's totally different, okay? Jeremiah says, and we'll close with some verses here. Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them and led them out of Egypt, this old covenant that they failed in, when I took them by the hand. But this is the covenant that I will make. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, after they've learned that, there's, that all they can do is fail. Then I'm going to make this new covenant 
says the Lord. I'm going to put my law in their minds, write it in their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. No more will they teach their neighbors, saying, Know the Lord, because they'll all know me. From the least to the greatest, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity. And their sin I will remember no more. Okay, if you're a Christian here tonight, you are a believer in Israel's Messiah and you have been brought into this new covenant that God has made with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Okay, this is the whole truth and nothing but the truth. It's amazing how many Christian pulpits don't teach the whole thing. It's as if this whole Christian thing is, it's like our Christian thing. No, it's what God has promised to Israel in the house of Judah, these total knucklehead, bumbling, failing, chosen people of his. And as a Gentile, I have faith in their Messiah, Romans 9, 10, and 11, and now I've been grafted in to the people of God. I'm no longer a foreigner I'm no longer a stranger. I'm no longer lost and without God in this world, but I've been made a partaker of all the promises to Abraham and to these people. And I'm called chosen in him, in Christ, in Messiah, which means I'm chosen now to know God as he's revealed himself and to make him known into the world. It doesn't mean you were chosen to go to heaven And non-Christians are chosen to burn in hell. That's not a Christian teaching. That's not a biblical teaching. That's a medieval European teaching. It's false. And I have friends that believe that because they're Calvinists. And I love my Calvinist friends. But that is not what the Bible is saying. God chose, he elected Abraham and said, through you, Abraham, all families of the earth are gonna be blessed. He didn't say... I choose you to go to heaven and these poor people in all these countries, they're all going to burn in hell because that's what I want. He didn't say that. Now we are called chosen in him. The new covenant, in the new covenant, our sins are forgiven and God doesn't even remember. There's no list. Love keeps no record of wrongs, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. God is love. God keeps no record of your wrongs. There's no list right now. God looks at you and it's as if you'd never sinned. That's what justified means. Just as if you'd never sinned. This is the new covenant, okay? Let's close with Hebrews chapter 10, verse 16, where the writer connects our Christian faith to this new covenant that Jeremiah said God was making with the, would make with the house of Israel and Judah. He says in Hebrews 10, 16, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I'll put my law into their hearts and in their minds I'll write them. He adds their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Then the New Testament writer of the Hebrews says, Now, where there is remission of these, where our sins have been forgiven, there's no list anymore against you. There's no more offering for sin. There's no more need of the sacrifice at the temple because Christ was the one that those sacrifices pointed to and he was crucified as your sin once and for all. It's done. Therefore, brethren, having boldness, this is what God wants from you. 
He wants you to get, be audacious. He wants you to be bold. You, who's painfully aware of your own sinfulness and failure because of Christ, he says, therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holy place, the holy of holies, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil, which was his flesh, having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering because God is faithful. He who promised is faithful. God is saying, I want you to get up and I want you to live your life I want you to live your life. Stop beating yourself up. Get up. Live. Get up in the morning and say, God, here's a new day. There's no sin that you see in my life. Your favor is upon me. I ask that you would bless this day, God. This is what he wants. Boldness. Well, I can't do that because you don't know the struggles I have inside. Yeah, that's the struggles and sin that he died for. There's no more list in God's eyes. Get up, because he that promised is faithful. What he did is actually real, and this is how he really sees us. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for the new covenant, that we are not under the old covenant. Thank you that we were born in these days, (laughs) Lord, that we have these glorious promises, this great hope, Lord, that we can look upon the finished work of Jesus Christ, that we can get up and live and rejoice and anticipate good things because you're with us and will never leave us because our sins are forgiven and that you don't even remember them. There is no list. We ask that this would happen in us for your glory and our greater joy. In Jesus' name we pray and everybody who agreed said together, Amen, amen. Sorry for going long. There you got chapter 9. Next week, we'll be in chapter 10. See you then. God bless you.